volunteers are heading downstairs, please be prayerful, and, um, and we should also be thankful uh, for our volunteers that do that uh, work on Sundays. Uh, let's pray for them, and let's pray for ourselves that our time in the Word would be fruitful uh, this morning, so let's pray. Well, God, we come before you, we ask in Jesus' name that this would be a time of not just instruction, but... Um, ingesting that instruction, knowing it, understanding it, get, having the grace to live it out. We pray that for the kids. We pray that as they uh, learn uh, from your word who you are and what you say through the stories and through the narratives of the Old Testament, this morning at least, uh, we just pray that they would uh, be able to grasp the gospel in it. Um, even now at this young, tender age, may we as parents, uh, see fruit from their time learning, Lord. And we pray that, uh, in, more importantly, they would see it in us. That this wouldn't just be a time to have church, check it off the list, and move on, but that there's actually a difference, that we, we look different, we seem different because of our time, Father. We need you to do that, God. We need your grace applied to our hearts for that. And so we invite you, we ask you to do that through your scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a brief reminder, we are in a series, we're calling it um, a Growing in Christ Sharp series of five attributes of a Christian. And by way of reminder, these are not how you become a Christian. These are things that are becoming of a Christian. This is not what makes you into a Christian. This is what a Christian is made up of. This is not to get you in the door. This means once you're in, what does your life look like? It, it should look like something. And so far too many Christians, or maybe I can put Christians in quotes. They, they say they're Christian. They check that box when they're asked about what religion they are, but are they really believers? And young people are leaving the faith in droves. This is, not, this is just common knowledge at this point, that our young people... They grow up, they leave youth group, they go to college. I'm not saying CFC, but just across America, across the globe, they just, they just leave. And so churches scramble to figure out how to fix youth group. Churches scramble how to fix relevance. And we don't often enough think about children growing up and seeing parents that are Sunday-only Christians. And it doesn't match. The stuff we talk about on Sunday and how we live our lives the rest of the week it doesn't match, and when it doesn't match, it seems phony. And one thing that young people hate is phoniness. So, this series is visiting the basics. What are the basics? What are ways that we can look at our own lives and go, man, do I at least, do I at least have these five basics in check? But to understand it appropriately, and where we sometimes get it wrong, is to reverse it and say, let me put these things in place in my life so that I can be a Christian, and that's not how it works. How do you become a Christian? You grasp by faith what we talked about in that time of communion. Once you do that, once you have that foundation, now you can build the house. Once you've got that home base of operation, now you can do your missions, right? And that's what we're going to see in this text. I want to turn you to Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in this verse many times, but we're going to revisit it because 
we are going over basics, and we're going to return to this passage. And what I want you to see is before this author tells them to do things, he reminds them of how they're able to do it. In other words, he starts with identity being before he moves to doing. So oftentimes we skip the being part, we just run around doing, and we're still not really in, and that's also phony, (laughs) because we really can't do those things without this foundation. So he begins with a reminder of a foundation, then he moves into exhortations. Okay, because this is true of us, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, all right? And so that's where we're going to see the foundation first, and then we're going to press into the things that he's asking of us uh, as Christians, what we should be doing. So if you are in Hebrews chapter 10, we are beginning in verse 19. Of course, we're dropping into the middle of a book. We normally don't do that. We don't normally preach through whole books. But for this five-part or six-part series, really, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at particular passages that are help us in this, with this topic. But he's, he's for 10 chapters, built and laid down this foundation. The book of Hebrews is kind of a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Okay, And you've got Christians that are kind of confused. They're like, well, all this Old Testament stuff, are we supposed to be doing that? The sacrifices, the feasts, the rituals? Or did they mean nothing? And he's like, well, they didn't mean nothing. We're also not supposed to do them. And the reason why is because they served as pictures that pointed forward to the ultimate answer that is Jesus Christ. So he's laying that foundation for 10 chapters, essentially. And then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, that's the whole church, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he says, let us, three times. Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. And we'll look at that. We're going to spend most of our time there. But I just want you to see how he begins with, since this foundation is laid, let's build a house this way, let's build a house this way. Right? So the foundation is the gospel and he, re, he just finished reminding them. Remember in the Old Testament, the priests would have to s- stand daily at their post and constantly offer the offerings, right? This was God saying, I'm going to dwell with you, my people, and I'm going to lead you in this land, and I'm going to reign. But in order for us to be at peace so we can have this relationship, we need offerings. There, you know, things need to be put in place. The death of animals for instance, to remind us that something has to take death for us if we're going to have life with God. But then the author of Hebrews reminded them in the previous paragraph, the reason why they had to do it daily is because it didn't really work. I mean, it was a sign, it was a picture, it was a symbol, but it didn't take. It wasn't actually effective. When Jesus came, he offered it one time, for all time, once. Why? Well, because it worked. It was effective. And now he's saying, remember that curtain that kind of divided even the priests from God, that, that curtain? Well, Jesus is the new path. Jesus is the new curtain. So we don't have that division anymore. Well, we're not separated from God anymore. Jesus fulfilled it through his blood in verse 19. And so he's provided a new and living way that's opened up for us through the curtain, is verse 20, that is through his flesh, through his body, through his death his life and his death. Verse 21, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's not like any of the other priests that came before him. He's eternal. It is full. You're sure about it. Remember in the Old Testament, people would approach you like, is that guy going to die? Right? They offered the wrong fire. They died. They're like Aaron's sons. And they died. Right? Uh, Ben talked about the dude that touched the Ark of the Covenant. He dropped dead. I mean, these are flimsy, fragile human people, but Jesus was, is an effective priest. And because we have this effective priest, we shouldn't question whether we have access to God. We shouldn't wonder if we have access to God. We do have access to God in Jesus Christ. It's full. We can be assured of it. It's effective. And so that's the foundation that produces life in the Christian, produces the things that we do. And if we don't have that foundation down, then we have no business thinking about what should I be doing as a Christian. What we need to be thinking about is, am I a Christian? There are times where I'll sit with somebody that says they've been Christian for many, many years, and then I just ask simple gospel questions, not seminary level, not a theology exam, simple gospel questions. And the kind of responses I get are like, well, the reason why I go to church is because I need to do good stuff. Well, why do you need to do good stuff? Well, because I need to be with God. You're not a Christian. You, you, the, the foundation is off. That's what's the problem. You've been trying to build this house this entire time, and the foundation's wrong. The foundation is we can't work our way toward God. We can't earn it. We fall way short. So Jesus came to meet the bar that we fall short of. But if Jesus met the bar, then he met the bar. You're not a Christian one day, and then, oops, you messed up, and then now you're not a Christian. You need to get rebaptized in and out, in and out, in and out. You're in or out, but there's nothing in and out. If you're in, you need to be assured of that. You need to know that. And if you are, it looks like something. It looks like something. So now he says, since we have this and since we have that, this is the gospel. This is Jesus, the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. Because we have that, well, we don't just sit there. We live it. We live it. So he says, since this and since that, twice, right? Then three times the exhortation, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this, okay? And so let's take the three in order. Verse 22, we draw near to God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So throughout the whole book, he's been emphasizing, hey, don't fall away. A lot of people, they fall away. They start out, they look like it, they learn stuff, they go to church, and then they leave, they drop off, they fall away. Well, what's the opposite of falling away? Leaning in and drawing near. I mean, he's not talking about a physical journey. We don't have a physical location on the earth that we're supposed to travel to, like a Mecca or something like that. So what does he mean by draw near? What's the opposite of falling away? Grow closer to the Lord. Mature in your walk with the Lord. But not to just kind of sit there and be like, oh, I guess I'm in and just live your life like everybody else. You're not supposed to live like life like everybody else who's estranged from God, who's still in alienation from God. You're in, you have access to God. You're at peace with God. And so you should be living a life that's drawing near to him. And we can't do that if we're still stuck in the foundation phase wondering if we've really been cleansed. So again... The foundation is the effective work of Jesus Christ. That's how our hearts are sprinkled clean. He's using the Old Testament language of the blood that was spilled on the behalf of those who would have access with God. The blood being sprinkled to remind the priest 
This is paying for it. This is making access possible. But now Jesus' sacrifice gives us assurance of faith. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That doesn't mean you don't remember your sins. That doesn't mean you don't remember your sins. I I think in heaven we'll remember our sins. And the reason why is because I don't think we're going to worship the lamb bowing down before him and call him the lamb and be like, why is he a lamb? I have no idea. Why did he die? I don't understand. What's death? Of course we'll remember. What's, what, what are we relieved of? Guilt. That's different than memory. It's weighing upon you that you still owe. You still owe me. You can't have access to me. You can't approach me. Go ahead and pray. I'm not going to listen to you. Remember what you did. But Jesus' sacrifice is so pure and so effective that you don't approach God going, okay, because of my good performance, I know you'll hear me. It's because of Christ's performance, I know you'll hear me. And when we don't approach God or when we approach God doubtfully, what we're doubting actually is the effectiveness of Christ's priesthood. But if he is an effective priest, that means he does hear me. He does listen when I pray. He does receive worship. He does accept me. Not because I'm great, but because Jesus is great. And that work of Christ is applied to my life. And so draw near. Don't be stuck. Don't be stuck in a place where you feel like, well, God, I, can, I get how he accepts other people, but not me. I feel like I barely got in the door. I'll be happy if I even make it all the way to heaven. Other people will get, like, awards and stuff, but I'm just going to be, like, in the background, barely making it in. We all come in on the same basis, on the same full, effective basis for assurance. That is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he encourages you to not sit there sort of feeling like you can't draw near because that's when we become tempted to fall away, actually. He's writing this letter not just to theologically explain to them how the Old Testament moves into the New Testament, but so that they don't give up, so that they can hang in there. So, draw near, verse 22. On that foundation, we draw near, we grow, we mature, we approach God. Verse 22. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see how he keeps reintroducing the foundation? He doesn't want you to let go of it. Cling to this confession of hope. Why? What's the basis? Your ability to cling, your, the strength of your grip. No. It's the strength of, G, uh, of God's ability to fulfill what he's promised. And so it's forward-looking. Notice he doesn't say the confession of our faith. That's what we might normally think he would say. When we say confession, he doesn't mean when you confess your sins. He means what we confess is true as a church, as a believer. What is true? And we normally refer to that as our faith. We might even say our our church website has our faith statement on it. What, What are the things that we believe? What do we believe? Statement of belief, doctrine. Interestingly, he doesn't say confession of faith. He says confession of hope, which doesn't mean it doesn't have content. It does have content, but he's saying it's forward-looking because God isn't done fulfilling his promises. He still has these promises that lie ahead of us, doesn't he? And so the world is wondering, what do we do about evil? What do we do about natural disasters? Well, let's have less cars and less cows, right? What do we do about evil? Let's have less guns. 
and more psychiatric evaluations. And Christians are sitting there debating on the same level. Like, oh, guns this, psychiatric evaluations that. Like, we don't have an answer. And sometimes we're like, well, yeah, 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 the gospel, but let's get practical. The gospel is practical. You don't change somebody's life with a psych evaluation. You change their life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be out there as witnesses and lights. This is the hope of the world. It's not policy. It's the Prince of Peace himself. That's Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't engage in those discussions, but we engage from a particular posture where we we have the antidote to the poison. Now, let's talk about poison, but I'm not going to pretend like I don't know what the antidote is. And so we have this foundation, and we hold to it. We cling to that foundation with a forward-looking posture. It's, It's hope, and we cling to it without wavering. And the reason why it doesn't waver, the reason why a Christian isn't, some days more hopeful than other days is because the the anchor of that hope doesn't change. Your circumstances change, but your hope doesn't change. When we feel like our hope is deflating, that's because our hope is in the wrong place. So how do we build each other up in that hope, remind ourselves of what that hope is, remind ourselves of what it is that we're actually clinging to, what are these promises? How do we remember that God is actually faithful in doing what he's saying that he's going to do and that has done and will do. Well, we do that together, and that's the third exhortation. Verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's so much to unpack there. We'll just make a few observations but i think he's culminating in this he's reminding them of the foundation he's telling us we need to hold fast to that foundation we draw near on the basis of that foundation in verse 22 and then now he wants us to consider how to do all of that together by meeting actually meeting together and that by meeting together we will be able to persevere and push ahead and do the things that we're supposed to do as a Christian. We stir one another up to love and good works. What are the good works? All the things that Scripture demands of us, commands us to do, the things it tells us not to do, the things that it tells us to do. How do we do that? How do we get stirred up to do that? How do we get encouraged to do that, to build on the foundation? We do that together. Together. So I I call this our huddle. Disciples of Christ huddle together. Jesus didn't call Peter and meet with him one-on-one and then call Andrew and meet with him one-on-one. From the very beginning, disciples met together. And even when he pulled aside his inner core, there's three of them, right? It's, It's always a huddle. We saw this in Psalm 1, that the person who's blessed of God and delights in Scripture doesn't join the crowd, but what does it say at the end? Joins the congregation. And so you're part of a group, right? You're part of a group, but if you're outside of the covenant with the Lord through Jesus Christ, then you're with the crowd. But when you're in, you're with the congregation. And what do congregations do? Congregate. We congregate. We get together. So that's why I think this verse is so key for understanding why 
a basic attribute of the Christian is getting together with other Christians. It's getting together with other Christians. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love in good works. There's an intentionality there, and he doesn't say, let us remember to meet. That's different. Let us consider, think about, strategize, be intentional, and and think about how to actually do what we're supposed to do when we're meeting together. That's different than just a a straight command, meet together. Okay, we we sat together, we sang songs, we heard a sermon, we left, did we meet together? Not, Not necessarily. What are we supposed to do when we meet together? We're supposed to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I looked up this week. I was curious, uh, do we know how the huddle initiated or was born, the huddle in sports? There was a football team in the late 1800s. Paul Hubbard was the captain and quarterback of a football team at a university for the hearing impaired, a deaf university. And they would play other deaf universities. And he was afraid that when he signed the plays to other players, they'd read the signs. So what do you do? Got in a huddle and signed inside the huddle so that other people wouldn't steal the plays. And then, of course, they destroyed the, uh, the, the other teams. But then I thought, why didn't only deaf schools do a huddle? I think because he discovered something that's highly valuable. In order to run plays, in order to be strategic, we have to, at some times, get together and go, hey, why don't you run this button hook pattern and you do this other thing? Uh, that's the extent of my knowledge of anything. I played Joe Madden, Sega Genesis. But, but, I mean, other sports, right? Baseball, the meeting on the mound, they're talking in their gloves so nobody lip reads, but what are they doing? Some of y'all are like, I hate baseball. There is no strategy. Well, there is. And sometimes you need a meeting on the mound. Um, those are games a game. Christian life, the Christian journey, five stark warning passages all throughout Hebrews, don't fall away. How do we not fall away? How do we not become a statistic, a church statistic? How do we not do that? Here's one of them. Huddle. You have to take a time out from running the plays and like, what are we doing here? Because I'm really tired. I feel like we're losing right now. I'm a little discouraged. I need a pep talk. I need some strategy. So that's why he doesn't say just meet physically together. But what do you do when you meet together? Well, think about it. Consider it. Consider how to stir one another up to love in good works. So this takes intentionality, but it doesn't take invention. I say it takes intentionality, not invention. And the reason why I say that is because we have to be intentional about it But when he, because he says, consider how to do this. So that, that means think about it, right? Meditate on that. Chew on that. But he doesn't mean figure it out how to do it because I'm not going to tell you. We don't have to invent it. We have to be intentional, but we don't have to come up with the strategy. The strategy is encourage one another toward love and good works. Now, some of us think we like encouragement, but oftentimes we really don't. What we think of as encouragement is the person that stands up there and just is like, you're awesome, you've got this, go get it. 
how long does that last? And why do you have to go to that guy's next conference? Right? It's a bunch of fluff with not, without a lot of real content. Just tells you how awesome you are, you believe it, go get it. It's tiring. But sometimes encouragement looks like a rebuke. Hey, you know why life is really hard right now? Because you're not obeying in this area. I was there once, but God taught me this way. Is that encouragement? Yeah, I think so. Hopefully that person doesn't say it like a jerk, but says it the way I said it. Like, hey, I, I need it too, but let me help you out. And then you'll be able to help that person out. But we're, we're considering how to stir one another up toward love and good works, meaning I'm not satisfied by you not doing good works. And you're not satisfied by me not doing good works. We're considering how to stir one another up, spur one another on, push each other toward doing the things that we're supposed to do. That means when I'm outside of the congregation or a congregation that does that, I won't be stirred up and I won't be encouraged. I'll be discouraged. I'll be stagnant. And that's where the trouble comes in for the dangers of what he warns about, falling away. Real believers that are really in are really building on a real foundation. And one of those ways that we build on the foundation is meeting together now, does that mean it's sinful to miss a Sunday? Now, I want you here. I, I love it when you're here. When you're not here, I do wonder where you're at. That doesn't mean it's wrong. But it'd be dumb of me to not wonder. If you have a family meal and everybody's there for dinner and there's a missing chair and you don't know where your kid's at, is it wrong to wonder where they're at? No, there could be a real legitimate reason why they're still in the room. They're feeling sick. Who knows? But to be like, nah, they're here, they're not here, I don't care. No, we do care. That's why we care if you're here or not. Now, is it wrong to miss a Sunday? I don't think we use this verse to say it's sinful to miss a Sunday. What's sinful here is to neglect meeting and make a habit of it. Look at the verse. Let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. That's the good side. There's the positive Here's the negative. Here's what I don't want you to do. If you're doing that, that means you're not doing this. Neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I love how he almost puts out on the side like, we know who, we're, who I'm writing about, right? As is the habit of some people. I'm not going to name their names and write it and scripturate it for the world to see for 2,000 years. But we all know there are some people that it's not they were sick, it's not because they were out of town. It's sort of a, I'll go to church when I'm ready. I'll go to church. You know what? It's good today. I feel good today. Yeah, I'll go. I don't know. Last week, it was just kind of a discouraging sermon. I think I'll just play golf today. It's that kind of mode where church isn't necessary. Church isn't necessary to keep me going, and I'm not in danger by missing church. And I tell you, you are in danger by missing church if church is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Now, there are churches that you are in danger by going to that church. I'm just going to tell you. False doctrine, false hopes, false ways of encouragement. There's cults out there. I mean, there's all kinds of places not to gather. But if a church is doing what they're supposed to be doing and teaching you the truth and singing the truth and seeing the truth and, and communion and all those things, and we're about encouraging one another hoping and wanting each other to progress and move ahead, it does take meeting together. 
and we are put in danger when we neglect it, and especially when that neglect becomes a habit, which is so easy. So you know how many seminary students, Bible students, just slept in on Sundays? The first thing I try to do with my students at Trinity, the first question I would ask the new students that come in, have you found the church yet? Then the next week, you find the church yet? Oh, I'm still kind of not looking. Have you found the church yet? Everyone else is kind of snickering that have had me for a couple years. But you don't get to drop your church in Minnesota somewhere, come out to seminary and study for four years and skip church, and then start applying to lead a church? Church is necessary for the Christian, period. Period. Some of y'all have plans to move. I get it. Illinois, I understand. What are the first three things you look at? Four things, five things that you've looked at. Climate, culture, politics, job. Where's church on the list? I'm going to meet in the middle of nowhere. I hate people. Great. Where's your congregation? Seriously, I want to move to the mountains. I wish I could live and I open up my back door and there's mountain bike trails and there's a, a pond to fish in. I don't know. But where are the people at? Some of you young people, you're in high school, you're looking at colleges. Great. University, great choice. Where's the church? And I will help you. Ask me. I will help you find a church that might maybe hold a candle to our church, but just good enough <laughs> to get you by, you know, for a few years. We can neglect almost by accident. We don't wake up and go, you know what, I'm going to neglect, neglect church now. It sneaks in because it never was a core part of our commitment as a Christian. And then when life happens, a job steals Sunday away from you, you move away for some other reason, a year goes by, two, three years go by, and you have it in your mind to find the church, but it's just not that important. It's more important to find the nearest Starbucks because I have to have access to certain things, right? And the other things is kind of just in the back of our minds. We didn't choose to neglect it, but at the end of the day, what did we do? We neglected it. So he's saying that's dangerous, and the reason why it's dangerous is because you lack that source of encouragement to stir you up to love and good works and when we're not encouraged toward love and good works we default to not loving and not doing good works and one day we'll wonder are we actually a christian and that's the purpose of this series the sharp profile they're not the only things that a christian does but if your life is devoid of these things and these things are neglected we need to revisit the foundation so quickly, what should we be doing? <clears throat> Stirring one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. It does develop into a habit, even if it doesn't start out that way. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We look ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, and that should put pressure on understanding our time in this world where frivolous things, silly things, Entertainment things matter less and less as Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's return is nearing. And he's like, how'd you spend your time? One of those questions might be, how much did, time did you spend on your own or outside of the congregation? And how much time did you spend leaning into the congregation? There is a way of neglecting what this passage is saying, even if you've got perfect Sunday attendance, isn't there? 
You've got perfect Sunday attendance, but have you ever encouraged anybody? You've got perfect Sunday attendance, but are you really being stirred up to love and good works? Or are you the same as you were five years ago? So, so it's not just checking the attendance box. Although attendance is needed to do it, it's hard to encourage one another if we don't see each other. But it's not merely attendance. It's not just being in the same room together, but it's encouraging one another. And here's a few ways we do that, okay, quickly. One is by spending time in God's word. We saw that last week. I want to remind you of the very popular passage, probably my, one of my favorite verses of all scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Why is scripture God-breathed inspired? It's inspired to, yes, teach us, train us in righteousness, even reprove and correct us. But it gives us a profit. He uses the word profit, a benefit. What is that benefit? Well, it equips you and makes you competent for every good work, Paul says. For every good work. That means you spend time in Scripture because the reason why Scripture was inspired was to get you to do good work. Now, hold on to that. I need to study Scripture. That was last week's sermon. I need to study Scripture to do good works. But then you have a passage like this that says the reason why you need to get together is to encourage each other to do good works. Well, which one is it? It's both. Meaning... We don't get to study Scripture on our own with our little private interpretations, read Scripture and close our eyes and go, I think it means this. We gather together and go, I read Scripture, I think it says this. What do you say? Yeah, it says this, and we confirm each other. And once in a while, you're going to get called out like, nah, I don't, think that's the right, I don't think that's the right reading. I still experience that, okay? But if we're isolated, we don't get that benefit. So we actually help each other study God's Word we study in community together, leaning on one another so that we can do the good works that Scripture is inspired to tell us to do. So we gather together. We gather together over Scripture. We gather together to study Scripture. We gather together to sing. Singing is one of the ways that the Word of God dwells in us richly. Uh, Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. How? Yes, but also through singing. And so if you come to church and you're like, ah, oh, these songs are a little dense. Sometimes I don't understand the words. I know because if we got together and only sang McDonald's-level songs, that's not going to be very enriching. The Word of God is to dwell in you richly. So we want to sing some songs that are a little bit, hopefully not McDonald's, but, you know, we might do some Chipotle songs. But then sometimes you're like, oh, that was a little hard to chew. I didn't understand that whole song. I know. We're introducing you to steak. Eat it. I know we don't naturally like vegetables, but, hey, th- this stuff is good. right? And so we, we sing together. We actually, if you read Colossians 3.16, we sing to one another. We're, we're not just singing to God. We're singing to one another. Then, of course, There's the need, I believe, and I'll close with this. There's the need to have more than just the Sunday gathering. We need to find ways to meet together outside of just Sunday. And this is very practical. I'd say I don't have a verse on this, but I will just point to this verse. Consider how to stir one another up. And it's difficult to stir one another up when we don't know what each other are going through. We don't know what each other's hang-ups are, temptations are. We don't know what our questions are, our doubts we, we, we're not benefiting from one another in, in, the way of, in, in the way that we're spending time in Scripture. 
because we sit lecture style and hear mainly one person teaching and then we go home and hopefully everybody lives it out. But when we get together over coffee, a meal, somebody's house, downstairs, upstairs, it doesn't matter where, but when we get together intentionally and consider how can I stir up other people around me and how can I be stirred up by other people around me, well, you can call that Bible study, small group, we call them growth groups here. Even if it's not an official growth group on our calendar, but you get together regularly with other people from our church, it's fine. It's great. It doesn't have to be, it's Tuesday night or Saturday morning or you're going to hell. I mean, we're just offering opportunities for you. But if there are other ways to create opportunities, we want to help you with that because Tuesday night doesn't work and Saturday morning doesn't work. I hope it's not. I don't like Tuesday people and the Saturday people are annoying, so I guess I'm not going to group. That shouldn't be the reason. But if it's a scheduling thing, we want to help you. Yeah, let's get a Wednesday thing going then. Let's do a Friday thing, but it, but, but it needs to happen. And if we find ourselves going, well, I can't do Tuesday because I have, you know, jujitsu, And I can't do Saturday because, you know, um, I'm doing my lawn. And I can't do Thursday because that's when I, you know, do my laundry. Well, even before we know it, we'll be in the neglecting category. And so we've got to figure out how can we get together, not just on Sundays, hi, bye, nice to sing with you, but how do we get, and maybe it is Sunday. Maybe it is Sunday. You make sure that every Sunday afternoon, let's say, you're going to get together with a few other Christians. Okay, we heard that sermon, and it's telling us to do these good works. How do we get there? Let's stir one another up to do good works. And the last thing I'll say is sometimes we're in the mode of it's hard for me to go to Tuesday night or whatever, because I'm not sure I got so much out of it last week. But notice he says, he doesn't say, consider how to get stirred up. Consider how to be the one who stirs someone else up. So we don't want to go to our groups and our gatherings and our Sundays and our Tuesdays and Saturdays or whatever the slot is, only thinking, how am I going to get fed? But also thinking, how might I encourage somebody else? And you might think you don't got the stuff to encourage somebody else. Yes, you do. You know how I know? If you've got the foundation that he just laid right here, you do. Because you're still here and you haven't fallen away. God's doing something in your life. Talk to somebody else about it because that's going to encourage them. And the people in the growth group that you think are these stellar Christians that never fail, never get tempted, yes, they do. And I guarantee they're not trying to put off that energy like they don't have anything wrong in their lives. Your growth group leader needs you. Right? We all need other believers in our lives to encourage us up toward love and good works. Christians, when they mature, at some point get to a place where they go, okay, I need to gather with other Christians. And then as they mature even beyond that, they move to a point where they say, okay, I get to meet with other Christians. I benefit from meeting with other Christians even when that person shared too long, right? I didn't understand that verse. This person, sometimes I feel like they're a little arrogant. I know. Like, are you arrogant? Like, we all come broken and needing more healing from the grace of Jesus Christ. But we don't come without this foundation. It's because of this foundation of what God has done in our lives that we meet together and push one another on to love the Lord and love others and do the good works that he's called us to do. So I ask you, are you committed, rather than neglectful, are you committed to gathering with other Christians in an intentional, encouraging, 
way. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're grateful to you that we don't have to meet in order to earn your love. We don't have to figure out how many times do we meet, how long do we have to meet in order to please you, but that it's the reverse. Because you're pleased, because we're at peace with you, because of the work that Jesus Christ has done in our lives, we belong to this family, and we want to meet with that family, learn about that family, want to encourage that family, and be encouraged by that family. And so, even now, Father, as we close in the song, we pray that we would recognize we're not just singing to you, but we're singing to your body, to the body of Jesus Christ. We're encouraging one another with this song, and we pray that even tonight in our prayer gathering, uh, that we would gather together and encourage one another with our prayers. Uh, Lord, continue to work your grace in our lives, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you